0: Reacting to the world's best science, the Naked Scientist Newsflash. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Dinah O'Carroll. First up, let's take a look at some of this week's biggest scientific breakthroughs. Dinah, what have you got for us?
1: Well, researchers this week have reported that wind speeds across the oceans have increased, on average, by at least 0.25% each year for the past 23 years. Now, we don't know whether this is linked to climate change, but Ian Young from the University of Technology in Melbourne claims that it's an important but often overlooked variable in climate change studies. Publishing in the journal Science this week, The team used satellite data taken predominantly from GeoSat altimeter readings, which they pieced together, and they found that wind speeds are increasing more in the southern hemisphere than they are in the north, and that the more extreme wind speeds are increasing by 0.75% per year. Overall, a quarter of a percent each year doesn't sound like that much, but it adds up to an increase in the last 23 years of between 5 and 10%. Now, the effects of this could be bigger waves, but the team actually found no statistically significant growth in wave height over the past two decades. Now, the heights of northern hemisphere waves seem to be getting only very slightly smaller, and the southern hemisphere waves were only getting slightly bigger. But neither of these changes were actually significant, and the researchers point out that This indicates wave height is determined by far more than just wind speeds, with other factors including swell and fetch. On the other hand, the largest waves in higher latitudes do seem to be increasing in height, and the authors point out that in more extreme conditions, this relationship between wind speed and wave height becomes more apparent. So you could argue that if wind speeds across the oceans continue to increase, the largest waves would grow even bigger. Now this uh, could potentially ha- affect how humans are able to exploit the sea, affecting fishing and shipping for example, or it could be a positive boon to our efforts in wind farming.
0: It's amazing to think that you can use a satellite just to measure the heights of waves, which is what they did, because you can see the wave crest. But why do they think that this is uh, an important discovery? Because you've said that really the waves are not getting that much bigger, so it should we be, be worried?
1: Well I think at the moment no but the point is that this increase has been quite constant and the other thing is that it does affect extreme conditions and it may be one of these systems where you end up getting a kind of tipping point so once the wind does increase to a certain level above its sort of yearly average then you might get quite a serious effect on wave height
0: Good for surfers though Yes Because you like windsurfing
1: Uh, Yeah I went for a little session yesterday feeling quite tired Thank
0: you Diana Well, one other big breakthrough this week is that scientists have solved a mystery that they've been trying to crack for at least 70 years. And that mystery is how do you get sperm to grow in a dish? Now, it might sound a bit trivial, but actually it's a really important discovery, this, for various reasons. And what scientists have done over the last 70 years has been to try to persuade the stem cells that in a testis mature to form sperm cells actually in a dish but they've never managed to do it but now this group who are based in Japan is Takehiko Ogawa and his colleagues they're at Yokohama City University over in Japan. They've published their method this week in the journal Nature and it really works. So what they did was to take a small sample of testis tissue because they reasoned that the reason that you can't make sperm cells grow in a dish is perhaps because the cells need the three dimensional environment and nourishment provided by all of the other supporting cells and stem Cells that are in the testis, and by taking a small piece of the testis, in this case they used uh, very, very young mice... And they put this small piece of tissue in a culture dish and then they used a very specialised way of nurturing the tissue. So they grew it in a sort of agarose, sort of jelly-like material that they also supplied with growth factors and other nutrients. And they also did another clever genetic trick, which was to use mice that had been genetically engineered so that when they produced a sperm cell, which contains half as much genetic material as a normal cell, then it would glow green so they could spot them easily. And what they found is under these clever conditions they started to produce glowing green cells when they examined them they could see that they actually had cells that were consistent with being mature sperm being produced over several weeks it took a few weeks of culture to make this happen but then the real clincher was that they were able to take those sperm cells and fertilize an egg to produce viable baby mice proving that they're actually producing really live viable sperm from this technique
1: that is really impressive but how can this help people
0: Well it's a good question um, because it does sound as I said at the beginning a little bit trivial but it isn't because there are many many examples of where people can't produce viable sperm and this leads to infertility. One very important consideration is there are some people who have to have various medical treatments for instance chemotherapies for cancer and those chemotherapies can destroy the environment in the testicle or the stem cells themselves that make the sperms rendering someone infertile and at the moment people do bank away sperm before they have those kinds of treatments but the problem is that that means there's a limited supply of the tissue there's a limited supply of sperm and if the sperm doesn't work very well then the person may actually not be able to reproduce after they've got better from their cancer so with something like this you could take a small sample of the tissue and then produce as many sperm as you needed later.
1: Okay so what are the costs of preserving sperm versus using this amazing new technique
0: yeah good question well to actually bank away sperm is very very cheap because all it involves doing is collecting a sample of semen and then you freeze it in liquid nitrogen at about minus 200 degrees um, this has been used for many many years for not just sperm but eggs and other tissue as well and it seems to keep the tissue viable but again it's a limited amount of tissue that you are able to store that way and if you use it all up you've run out, or if something goes wrong with the storage, you've lost it. Whereas if you have tissue that can reproduce new sperm from fresh, then that's got to be a much better outcome. It will be more expensive, but at the end of the day, it's probably going to be better medically to have that option open to you, I would argue.
1: And on the subject of cancer, this week has also seen a breakthrough in the field of melanoma, a form of skin cancer that's becoming increasingly common. In fact, the incidence of the disease has doubled in the last 10 years. But now there's some good news because, with the help of a tank full of fish, scientists at Harvard University have discovered a gene that drives the disease and therefore could hold the key to new ways to treat it. To explain more and talking to Chris, here's the author of the work, Leonard Zon.
2: Well, my laboratory has been focusing on melanoma, which is a very deadly skin tumor. Um, And we had developed about five years ago a model of melanoma in the zebrafish. Um, In this model, we took the human gene uh, that's known to cause melanoma, a gene called BRAF, and we overexpressed it in the zebrafish um, in combination with another gene, p53, which is the most common mutated form of a tumor suppressor gene in humans. And that combination led to fish that developed melanoma. We're able to study those tumors, and they really resemble very uh, very similar signatures of genes uh, to what you would see in a human tumor. And so with that, we wanted to understand whether we could use this model to find new genes that cause cancer or find uh, new therapies that might uh, be used for the treatment of melanoma. We knew there was a region on human chromosome 1 that was amplified in about 30% of all human melanoma. And we studied that region and found that there were 54 genes in that interval. And um, we then looked at gene expression among 100 human melanomas, and we found that 17 of those genes were expressed very highly. And so we needed to figure out which was the driver gene, which was the most important to the cancer. And so what we decided to do was to take each of these 17 genes and to inject them individually into our zebrafish embryos at the one-cell stage, and then to grow up those fish and count how many fish developed melanoma. And what we found was that one of those genes, a gene called SETDB1, um, had the ability to greatly accelerate the melanoma, and this was likely the driver gene in this uh, particular critical interval. And is this representative
0: of what you think goes on in humans? In other words, if you were to take human melanomas, real clinical tissue, do you see this same gene, this SETDB1 gene that you've now discovered to be involved, also mutated in the human problem?
2: Well, that's right. So 30% of human melanomas will have amplifications of set DB1. And we went on to show in this paper that actually 70% of melanomas will overexpress setdb one So it's something that's central to being a melanoma, uh, a tumor, is to overexpress this particular gene. Um, so I think that over time, we'll be able to see that this Gene also participates in other cancers too and this region is also amplified in other tumours of humans such as lung tumours and also breast tumours.
0: We'll come on to what set DB1 might be doing in a second but first of all if 70% have it what about the 30% of human melanomas that don't what's going on in them then?
2: Well, the way I think about this as an oncologist, if I um, see a patient, I'll often uh, describe their tumors as, let's say, poorly differentiated or well-differentiated. And what that means is that I can actually classify them by how the tumor looks like under a microscope. We think that uh, melanoma isn't a single disease, but there's actually different causes of melanoma. Um, And so there's different driver genes depending on uh, where the melanoma arises on your body um, and what types of exposures to carcinogens or light sunlight is often thought as an instigator for the melanomas so um, with all these different options uh, the tumors could be heterogeneous and so what we would say is that the 70 percent that uh, overexpress set one that must be one category and then the other 30 percent have a different uh, classification and probably represent a different stage or a different location of those melanomas so what do you think set one is doing Well, there's a new field that's blossomed over the past uh, five years called epigenetics. And epigenetics deals with things that aren't inherited in a typical genetic manner. We're used to mutations, let's say, being inherited genetically. But in this particular case, um, DNA is actually wound around a spool. And uh, that spool is a set of proteins called histones. When the DNA is wound too tightly, um, the genes are shut off. When DNA is wound loosely, the genes are on. This gene SETDB1 seems to wind the DNA a little bit too tightly, and that shuts off particular types of genes that have an identity in the melanoma. So, for instance, one class of genes that we found are a gene set called the Hox genes, which regulates the body plan normally of how embryos develop. But we think that somehow this gene alteration in terms of expression leads to a change in the cell fate, and that makes the tumors more invasive.
0: And does this in turn also give you new strategies for how to combat melanoma? Because the survival prospects for someone who's diagnosed with an advanced melanoma are really dismal at the moment. So are we going to be able to do something about it with this discovery?
2: So um, setdb one is an enzyme that actually methylates the uh, uh, histones, and that regulates whether the DNA is tightly wound or not. And so because it's an enzyme, it's possible to make inhibitors to this enzyme. And so we're in the process now of talking to drug companies to think about inhibiting this particular enzyme, and we think this would be uh, a wonderful treatment for the patients, 70% of the patients who overexpress this gene who have melanoma.
1: Harvard scientist Leonard Zonn talking to Chris Smith there. He published that work this week in the journal Nature. Well, Also in the news this week, scientists from Harvard and the University of Science and Technology of China have worked out how the lily pops open when it blooms. Now they looked at the Asiatic lily, otherwise known as Lilium Casablanca. Researchers Liang and Mahadevan marked the bud with dots along the inner petals and outer sepals. Now these are usually the green leaf like parts underneath the petals. They then set up a camera to track the dots as it grew. Now publishing in PNAS, they found the petal and sepal edges lengthened 40% more than the midribs and these are the central veins which go through a petal or you can see them in a leaf as well and this disparity in growth created that characteristic wrinkling that you see along the edge of a lily petal. Now the authors say that this difference in growth causes stress to build up inside the bud and the forces eventually exceed those keeping the bud closed causing the flower to burst open. Previous studies have argued that it is actually the midrib which causes the popping open of the lily. So to test this, the researchers actually shaved it off the petal. Lo and behold, it still popped open as normal. Now, why is this important? The authors argue that it can be mimicked in technology for designing these little thin film motors, which would need blooming explosions on a very small scale.
0: I was going to say that or, for instance, people have informed how to make solar panel arrays unfurl in space by using similar sorts of designs. If you look at how flowers do it by storing energy in different bits of the structure so they then pop open and adopt a stable configuration, you've got the perfect compact design for sending panels or whatever into space, radar dishes and so on. So it then pops open and adopts this new stable shape.
1: Yeah, it's a great idea when sort of space and uh, energy is limited.
0: Absolutely. Thanks, Diana. Well, also this week, we've talked about stem cells that can produce sperm cells. Now, scientists have managed to find a way to produce some of the critical structures in the eye that may be needed to repair the visual system in people suffering from the condition age-related macular degeneration. Now, this is important because AMD is going to become more and more common because we have an ageing population. What's happening with macular degeneration is that the photoreceptors, these are the specialised cells in the retina that convert light photons into brain signals. Those cells degenerate, chiefly in the region known as the macula, hence the name. The macula being the most concentrated area of photoreceptors in the retina, which we use when we're doing Very high acuity visual tasks like watching television, reading a book, or looking at someone's face. So you end up with a big black hole in the middle of your visual field. Now, what scientists have found is that if you can put new photoreceptors into the eye, they can wire themselves in and restore vision. They've shown that in mice, suggesting that if we can get a population of cells of the right type and put them into a human eye, we may be able to restore sight to people who are losing it because of this kind of disease. And this has come a step closer this week, thanks to a paper that's published in the journal Stem Cells. It's by Maria Kokinaki and her colleagues. She's based at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. And what they have discovered how to do is to reprogram skin cells to become the retinal pigment epithelial cells, which form the RPE or retinal pigment epithelium at the back of the eyeball, which nourishes and supports the photoreceptors, and is thought when it goes wrong to be part of the process that triggers AMD. So what they did was to take fibroblasts, skin cells from an adult human, and then use a modified set of viruses to move into them four genes. They were Oct4, Sox2, Nanog, and one called Lin28. That's not so important as the fact that what these genes are known to do is to wipe the genetic slate clean in the cells they're added to to turn them back into a non-specialised stem cell-like cell called an iPS cell or an induced pluripotent stem cell. When they cultured these IPS cells under the correct environment, they were able to make them turn into new retinal pigment epithelial cells in the dish. And they then describe in their paper a whole range of different tests and techniques they do, including biochemical assessments, morphological assessments, functional assessments, and also genetic assessments of the behaviour of these cells. And as far as they can tell, they behave identically to mature adult retinal pigment epithelial cells that you would find normally in the eye. Now, that sounds like great news, but the only fly in the ointment is that actually genetically the cells seem to age faster than they should. They've got increased telomere shortening, the telomeres being these sort of end caps on the chromosomes that are eroded every time the cells divide. The new RPE cells they've made have shorter ones of those than they should do, and they also have some genomic instabilities, which the team think is because of the techniques they use to reprogram these cells Back from skin cells. Even so, and that aside, the fact that they're able to turn skin cells into healthy eye cells suggests that we just have to overcome the slight genetic problem, and then we've got a very viable technique in order to rescue back from people who have AMD healthy vision if we can get these cells into the eye. Anyway, if you would like to follow up more on that story or anything else we've been talking about, then the references and some transcripts for all of those stories are on our website. You can find them at thenakedscientist.com forward slash news. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.